Uh, as Steve said at the start, we're looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians at the moment, and that's a letter in which we get lots of glimpses into Paul's life and the profound difference that the gospel makes in his life. Uh, and today we're going to hear how Jesus totally changed what Paul thinks is of worth, what's valuable. Uh, so if you've got a Bible with you, keep it open. I'll be stepping through it, following the handout. And let me pray for us as we come to God's Word. Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to us clearly through your Scripture. Help us to understand what you're saying to us in your Word today and to see Jesus clearly. In his name we pray. Amen. What is of worth or what gives someone worth? I googled who has the most worth and this is what came up. I first did this search in September when I was giving a similar talk to International Students UQ uh, and then the answer was Elon Musk. Uh, His stocks have tumbled a bit between now and September uh, and it's now Bernardo Nolt if we're judging worth by financial value. But worth is broader than just money. In Australia, we often find worth in what we do. If you ask your friends or neighbours, they might tell you that the people of most worth are doctors, engineers, or maybe, with all these new AI releases, computer programmers. Or they might tell you that being a parent or being someone who gives back to the community, that's what gives you worth. Paul's thinking about something a bit different than money or profession when he's talking about worth here. If we look at verse 1, this passage starts with Paul telling the Christians to rejoice in the Lord, to find joy in Jesus and in being united with him. And the rest of the passage is Paul explaining to us why we can find joy in the Lord Jesus. Paul then tells them that he's writing about something he's told them before as a safeguard to them. This is the issue of some people telling the Christians that they have to follow Jewish rituals to be right with God. And Paul is totally opposed to that thinking, which is why he uses such strong language against those people in verse 2. They're not doing good works of Torah, good works of the law. Actually, they're evildoers. They say you've got to be physically circumcised to be in God's people. But actually, Paul says in verse 3, it's the Christians who are truly God's people, uh, and they're just mutilators of the flesh. The Christians don't need to follow any of the Jewish rituals to be right with God. It's not that those rituals were wrong, but that something's changed. Those were things that God commanded his people, the Jews, to do, But God never intended them to be done forever. They were just there as pointers to what Jesus would achieve. Here in verse 3, Paul doesn't focus on that pointing to Jesus part. Have a read of Hebrews if you want to look more into that. But instead, Paul mentions three things about Christians being God's people. First, Christians serve God by his spirit. It's not about doing what God commanded by our own strength. It's serving empowered by God. Second, Christians boast in Jesus. It's their connection to him that's most valuable because, third, they put no confidence in the flesh. It's not anything about us or what we do that makes Christians confident before God. It's all about Jesus 
and what he's done. And Paul's going to talk more about what Jesus has done. But before he gets to that, he discusses his former confidence in the flesh, in his human efforts. Paul isn't saying we find our worth in Jesus because actually he was really bad at those Jewish rituals and couldn't live up to that. No, as verses 4 to 6 show, Paul was really great at being and doing all the things that his opponents want the Christians to do. In verse 5, Paul tells us that he was circumcised on the eighth day, exactly as God's law commanded. He's an Israelite, a Jew, and he's not just born an Israelite in general, he can trace his lineage back to one of the original 12 tribes. He's even been raised a Hebrew, speaking Aramaic, not a Greek. In short, his status is purebred Jew. And he's achieved great things. In terms of following God's law, He's a Pharisee. He's part of the group that takes the law so seriously, they invent a whole bunch of extra laws to make sure they definitely don't break any of God's actual laws. And did Paul take this seriously himself? He was so serious, so passionate, so full of zeal, that he was persecuting the church. He was arresting Christians and putting them in jail because he thought they were doing it all wrong. If it was possible to be righteous to be morally pure and in a right relationship with God through following God's law and doing all the right things, Paul was faultless. If anyone was going to find worth in being Jewish and obeying God's law, Paul would be that guy. We're about to hear about how Paul's perspective has totally changed now he's been found by Jesus. But before we do that, Think with me for a moment about what you find worth in. I suspect few, if any of us here today, are Jewish. We can't really relate to Paul's boasts. What do we try and find worth in instead? Sometimes it's our status. We don't really have a class system here in Australia, but we have the subtle markers. Do you feel pride because you went to UQ a top 60 university in the world, rather than QUT or Griffith? Would you be worth more if you'd actually gone to Harvard or Cambridge instead? Or maybe it's the house. You are in a lovely double-storey house in Chapel Hill, freshly renovated, you've paid off the mortgage. That makes you worth more than those plebs renting out in Ipswich. Or maybe it's your achievements. You might not be taking pride simply in your profession, But when you got that latest promotion at work, did that make you worth more? Or is it your children's achievements? You're the parent of that straight A kid. Or you're worthwhile because you're the parents who do everything you can to help your kids pursue their dreams, even if that means set early morning drop-offs and late afternoon pick-ups seven times a week so they can do soccer practice and band. You might not be consciously thinking that God considers you more worthwhile because of those things. But when your family's proud of you, when your friends and neighbours approve of you, it's easy to start thinking that God must surely agree. As humans, we're really good at finding our worth in our status or our achievements. And we can even do this as Christians. You might agree officially that we're saved by grace, not works but it's still easy to live with your confidence in something else. 
Because you go to a good Bible-teaching church, that's why you're right with God. Because you serve on the music roster twice a month and you lead small group or youth group, that's why God values you. Because you're a good Christian who prays every day and always keeps up with the read the Bible in two years plan, that's how you know God's happy with you. Or maybe you aren't convinced that you're worthwhile because you don't measure up to those things. That's still trying to find worth in them. Let's see how Paul says that Christians should think differently. When Paul became a Christian, everything he valued changed. His status as a purebred Jew, his achievements as a zealous lawkeeper, he used to consider those gains, but now, in verse 7, he considers them loss for the sake of Christ. And it's not just them. In verse 8, he tells us that he now considers everything a loss, because knowing Christ Jesus as his Lord is so, so much more valuable. Paul's using an accounting metaphor here. When you're doing up your account books to keep track of how your business is doing, you mark some things down as gain or profit and other things down as expense or loss. You want more gains than loss. Gains are good, loss is bad. That's how you get profit. But now he knows Jesus. Paul says he's had to rewrite his books. Everything he had in the gains column, he's now to move over and chuck in the loss column. And there's only one thing left in the gain column that's worth more than the loss of everything else combined, knowing Jesus. Paul's not just saying that knowing Jesus is better than being a Jew and keeping the law. He's saying that knowing Jesus is so valuable that anything else which might possibly get in the way of it is to be treated as loss. He goes even further at the end of verse 8, and calls them garbage, crap, something worthless and revolting. Jesus has totally changed what Paul values. It's like sailing on a treasure ship. Your heavy cargo of gold and jewels seems valuable, but when a big storm comes and you might be shipwrecked, everything you used to value is now just weighing you down. You chuck it overboard because you surviving is worth more than that treasure. It's the same with Jesus. And Paul in this passage talks about Jesus being a gain for him in two different ways. In verse 8, he talks about knowing Christ. Not just knowing facts about Jesus, but knowing Jesus as a person, having a relationship with him. We'll come back to that in verses 10 and 11. But Paul also talks at the end of verse 8 and start of verse 9 about gaining Christ and being found in him. And it's being found in Jesus that he's explaining more in the rest of verse 9. The Bible teaches that Christians don't just relate to Jesus as another person out there. It talks about Christians being in Jesus and Christ living in Christians. That doesn't mean that you can cut me up and find Jesus in there but it means that there's a real spiritual connection between Christians and Jesus, which means that each Christian gets included in what Jesus has done for his people, and Jesus takes on the sins, the wrong actions and attitudes that Christians have done, and he deals with it all when he dies on the cross. We can explain this using another accounting metaphor, 
what happens in marriage. Traditionally, when two people get married, they share everything they own. I got married in the middle of last year. Here's a picture of us on our honeymoon. And one thing that my wife, Monique, loves about being married to me is that now no longer do I have hoodies, we have hoodies. And whatever she wants, she takes one of our hoodies and wears it. And those of you who've been along to night church will have seen this happen. The hoodies were mine before we got married, but now we share everything, so they're ours. But it's not just hoodies. All the money and assets and debt that we brought into the marriage are now ours. One way that the Bible describes Christians being in Christ, being united to Jesus, is like a marriage. Except we didn't bring any assets into the marriage. We just brought a huge debt. All of our sin, all of our rebellion, all of our trying to prove our worth with our status and achievements. Jesus takes all that huge debt of sin and he pays it off in full when he dies on the cross. And instead, we get to share in the huge asset that he brought in, his righteousness, his perfect standing before God the Father. Before someone trusts in Jesus, they've got this huge debt. But after they trust in Jesus, after they're united in him, it becomes our debt that he deals with, and his righteousness becomes our righteousness that we get to share in. This is what Paul's talking about in verse 9. Being found in Christ, Paul no longer tries to be righteous himself by following the law, which never was good enough to please God. He has Jesus' righteousness, which he gets through faith in Christ, through simply trusting in Jesus. It's not that it was wrong to be Jewish or to try and please God in what you do, but relying on that to make God happy with you, that was a problem. And Paul so much wants to avoid ever relying on that again that he considers all that loss compared to knowing Christ and being found in him. Going to university is good, getting promotions at work is good, giving your kids a nice start in life is good. But if you let that define your worth, it becomes bad. Coming to church is good, reading your Bible and praying regularly is good. But if you're relying on them to make God pleased with you, that's bad and it just doesn't work. We write before God not because of anything we do, but entirely because of what Jesus has done for us, which we share in by being united with him when we trust in him. It's not always easy to change our thinking, though, even when we know and believe this. When I was at university, I was one of those straight seven students, and it was really easy to think that each time I got a good grade, that I'd feel good about myself, feel like I was worthwhile. And now I'm studying at Bible college, I've had to work really hard to not be thinking that I'm a good Christian if I get a high grade. I want to honour God by studying well, but I have to keep reminding myself that I'm there to learn well so I can serve you and others in ministry. I shouldn't be aiming at getting high grades. And what really matters and defines my worth before God is being in Christ, not what grades I get or the fact that I'm attending Bible college at all. What's worth most is Christ. Christ. 
when Paul then talks about knowing Christ Jesus and comes back to that in verses 10 and 11, he's not talking about knowing facts about Jesus. He's talking about experiencing being united with Jesus, knowing the power of Jesus' resurrection and knowing what it's like to participate in Jesus' sufferings. Jesus' death and resurrection aren't just the defining events for Christianity. They're the defining events for each individual Christian that shape our lives now we're united with Jesus. His resurrection here means his new eternal life, life as it was meant to be with God, life as it will be when Jesus returns and makes all things new. And Jesus' resurrection power is in Christians now, empowering us to start living God's new way. Because Christians united with Jesus, the pattern of his life, cross before resurrection, suffering before glory, will also be the pattern of our life. And so this is what Paul expects the Christian life to look like. We're going to share in Jesus' sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That doesn't mean that Christians are all going to be physically crucified like Jesus was. But the Bible tells us to expect that because Jesus was persecuted, because he was mistreated by people because of what he said and believed about God, we're going to be persecuted too. As Jesus struggled with temptation, we all struggle with temptation too. And as Jesus died for our sins, we, empowered by his resurrection power in us, will go through the painful process of killing our sins too. Christians are forgiven, but we don't become instantly perfect. We still sin. We still think and say and do and fail to do the wrong things. Though by Christ's resurrection power in us, we do get better at living God's way over time. And God uses all of this, being persecuted for being a Christian, our struggle with sin, even suffering in general, to make us more like Jesus, to become more like him in his character, to love others like him, to show compassion like him, to be generous to people who don't deserve it like him. As we heard last year in our Roman series, God promises us in Romans 8 that he's using all things, good and bad, to grow his people to be more like Jesus. And since knowing and being found in Jesus is of such great worth, How great is it to become like Jesus ourselves? What's Paul's goal in all of this? He says in verse 11 that it's that he will be resurrected too. Paul's looking forward to the future hope that one day he'll have a body made anew like Jesus' resurrection body, a body that will no longer sin or die, but is instead made to live with God and enjoy him forever. Whether Paul is killed for being a Christian, or he dies of natural causes, or he's still alive when Jesus returns, somehow he is going to get that resurrection body. And we Christians can be certain of that too. God's working everything in this life to make us more like Jesus in character, and he's equally committed to giving us resurrection bodies like Jesus when Jesus returns to judge and rule. We've seen today that no other worth compares to being in Christ and becoming like him. If you're here this week and you're not a Christian yet, I hope this has helped you see just how valuable Christians think Jesus is. 
how knowing him and becoming like him is what's of greatest worth in life. I'd encourage you to keep learning more about Jesus by continuing to come along to church and or reading the Bible with a Christian you know. And if you're a Christian, I hope this has challenged you not to look for worth in the wrong places, to not think that you're valuable or you're loved by God because of any status or achievements, but instead to see that Jesus is what's of most value and be reminded that you're right with God because you're united with Jesus and you share his righteousness. I hope you're also reminded that suffering as a Christian is not necessarily bad. It's actually the sort of life we should expect. We're connected with Jesus and our lives should fit the pattern of his life. God working through suffering and everything to make us more like Jesus in our thoughts and actions which will be completed when Jesus returns and we are resurrected to live with God and enjoy him forever. So let's pray and thank God for all he's done for us in Jesus, asking that we can recognize the worth we have in him and becoming like him. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great goodness to us in sending Jesus to die in our place for our sins and to rise again to eternal life which we can share simply by trusting in him. Help us not to seek worth in who we are or what we do, but to see just how great it is to be in Christ Jesus and become like him. In his name we pray. Amen.